Hello and welcome to episode 12 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. This episode is part three of our discussion of General James Longstreet, and in this episode we will cover the battles of First Manassas, Seven Pines, the Seven Days Battles, and Second Manassas. To pick up where we left off in episode 11, Longstreet reported to Richmond for duty And on June 17, 1861, he was made Brigadier General and told to report to PGT Beauregard at Manassas Junction, Virginia. He arrived on April 2nd by train to see Beauregard, who at the time commanded little more than an armed mob at Manassas Junction, passionate as they surely were for their cause and for the battle. The commanding general required capable officers, and when Longstreet reported, Beauregard surely welcomed him. Before long, these men developed a respect and affection for each other. Now, the most successful officers in the Army imposed discipline, demanded incessant drill, and cared for the needs of their troops. From the first day in command outside Manassas Junction, Longstreet attended to all three, and within two weeks, Tom Goree wrote his mother that Longstreet, quote, is considered one of the best generals in the Army, unquote. When it came to assembling his staff, Longstreet was an excellent judge of of talent, seeking individuals of intelligence and perception who had organizational skills. According to Jeffrey Wirt, he sought neither syncopants nor fools. Men of keener intelligence than himself did not threaten Longstreet. Confidence in his own abilities allowed him to fashion a personal staff that became one of the finest, if not the finest, in the Army during 1862 and 1863. Now, let's talk about 1st Manassas. Longstreet's units played a small but important role early in the 1st Manassas battle. They were positioned at Blackburn's Ford on the Bull Run River, which was on the far right flank of the Confederate position. His brigade of Virginia infantry faced several companies of the 1st Massachusetts as part of a flanking force under Union General Tyler, whose men plunged down a bluff on Okaquan Creek and toward the Virginians. At first, Longstreet's rebels broke to the rear when they saw the gray-clad Yankees coming. Yes, I said gray-clad. As a side note, on this first major battle of the war, some Union soldiers wore gray and some Confederate soldiers wore blue, which made for some very confused fighting. Back to the story. Now, after this happened, within minutes, Longstreet was among his men, a cigar in his mouth and a saber in his hand, quote, amid a perfect shower of balls, unquote, rallying them. His response and presence stabilized the line, and the Virginians repulsed the attack. The Massachusetts soldiers scrambled back up the bluff and lay down behind the crest. Commanding General of the Union Force, Irwin McDowell, unable to cross at Blackburn's force because of this, uh, this retreat, uh, was then forced to cross the river elsewhere, and to flank the rebels on the left instead. This turned into a disaster for the Yankees when Johnston's reinforce, Johnston reinforced Beauregard and General T.J. Jackson came to be known as Stonewall Jackson for his men's heroics on Henry Hill. After the battle, Beauregard praised the conduct of Longstreet and his men at Blackburn's Ford. In his report of the engagement, Beauregard stated that Longstreet, uh, to, of Longstreet that, quote, by his presence at the right place at the right moment among his men, by the exhibition of characteristic coolness, and by his words of encouragement to the men of his command, he infused a confidence and spirit that contributed largely to the success 
of the arms on that day. The first Manassas battle resulted in a good kicking of McDowell's Union Army by the rebels under Beauregard and Joseph E. Johnston. It was such a, an overwhelming and confusing route for the green and confused Yankee troops that many of them did not stop running until they were well within the fortifications surrounding Washington, D.C. Needless to say, Lincoln needed a new Union commander. So while this was going on, over in western Virginia, Longstreet's old academy roommate and friend, William S. William S. Rosecrans, now a Union brigadier, had directed the fighting that drove the rebels under Robert E. Lee from the field and eventually out of western Virginia altogether. Now, uh, George B. McClellan was the overall commander and had received the acclaim from Northern Press for this victory, even though it was Rosecrans that had done the work. So when Irwin McDowell and the Yankees lost at Manassas, Lincoln chose the North's new hero, George B. McClellan. The rebel army, for now called the Army of Potomac, confusingly, moved to Centerville, Virginia, where it was reorganized and settled into position where it would remain through the winter of 1862. Now, during this time, Longstreet enjoyed a renewal of friendships from his antebellum army days and the new acquaintances of fellow generals in the Confederate Army. He was a popular companion, as he had been among the regulars, and his headquarters was visited on a frequent basis. An ample supply of whiskey, a fine meal, and the probability of a good poker game lured numerous generals into his headquarters, even an irascible man like Jubal Early, who would later become one of Longstreet's bitterest post-war enemies, sought out the conviviality offered by Longstreet and his staff. Longstreet was described by his chief of staff, Moxley Sorrell, as, quote, a most striking figure, about 40 years of age, a soldier every inch and very handsome, tall and well-proportioned, strong and active, a superb horseman and with an unsurpassed soldierly bearing, his features and expression fairly matched, eyes glint blue steel, bl- deep and piercing, a full brown beard, head well-shaped and poised. The worst feature was his mouth, rather coarse. It was partly hidden, however, by his ample beard, unquote. However, Lieutenant William W. Blackford, a cavalry staff officer, was introduced to Longstreet at a dinner in Fairfax Courthouse. Longstreet impressed Blackford, quote, as a man of limited capacity who required reputation for wisdom by never saying anything. The old story of the owl, unquote. Longstreet and Jackson were considered the best field generals at First Manassas, and as a result, both were promoted to major general. Longstreet's command was now a division of four brigades of infantry and Hampton's Legion, soon to be increased to six brigades. Longstreet was the only major general to conduct drills with his division while at Centerville. He conferred frequently with his brigade commanders and lectured them uh, both and their men about, quote, nonsensical, unquote, idea of retreat or defeat. In Gorey's words, Longstreet told them that, quote, in every battle, somebody is bound to run, and if that they will only stand their ground long enough like men, 
the enemy will certainly run, unquote. Longstreet was, Gorey claimed, quote, very reserved and distant towards his men and very strict, but they all liked him, unquote. Now, this was the time uh, of tragedy for the Longstreet family. Uh, Louise Longstreet and their four children had been staying in Richmond, and as Longstreet was returning to camp after a visit to Richmond, a telegram arrived from Louise urging his immediate return to Richmond. Scarlet fever was raging through the city, and all the chil- all of his children were sick. It is uncertain whether any of the children were ill before he left for Centerville, but now all four were grievously sick. Racked with uncertainty and fear, he hurried to their sides as swiftly as the railroads carried him. He and Louise had already lost two children. Uh, could either either of them withstand another loss? Well, Longstreet reached the city in time to be with Louise when one-year-old Marianne succumbed to the fever on uh, January the 25th. There was no time for grief as the parents and the doctor battled to save the three boys. But the next day, four-year-old James died, six-year-old Augustus Baldwin and 13-year-old Garland fought on, their ages and strength aiding the struggle. But finally, on February the 1st, Gus died. The depths of their sorrow had no limits. Sally Corbell and her beau, George Pickett, Longstreet's old comrade in the 8th Infantry and now a Confederate brigadier, were with the Longstreets throughout the ordeal. Despite her own grief, young Sally, who had come to adore the children, and Pickett made the funeral arrangements. James and Louise either could not or, or chose not to attend the ceremony as the three children were laid to rest in the city cemetery. Garland remained ill but appeared to be out of danger. In March of 1862, Union General George B. McClellan landed his massive and well-provisioned Union Army on the peninsula between the York and James Rivers in Virginia and was soon confronted by the Confederate Army now under Joseph E. Johnston. This was the start of the Peninsular, Peninsular Campaign. Beauregard had been sent west by Jefferson Davis after a bitter disagreement, and Johnston was now in sole command of the Confederate Army in Virginia. There was a brief siege at Yorktown, the very place where the British Army had been doomed almost 80 years earlier. Then the rebels withdrew up the peninsula towards Richmond, with Longstreet's division playing the role of rear guard. As McClellan's army crept slowly towards the Confederate capital... The first major battle of the Peninsula Campaign was Seven Pines, also known as Fair Oaks, which occurred on May 31st of 1862 when Johnston finally decided to make his stand and defend the capital. It was also his last with the Confederate Army in Virginia because he was badly wounded during this battle. It was Longstreet's first large-scale command and probably the worst performance of, of the war. Johnston gave Longstreet responsibility for an attack on the Union right flank that, if executed properly, could have overwhelmed two federal corps isolated on the south side of the Chickahominy River. Johnston gave Longstreet verbal instructions, assigning him to command of his own and DHL's and Huget's divisions. 
The responsibility for conducting an assault on the Union right flank was now Longstreet's. However, Johnston's directions to all involved were verbal and they were imprecise. As the battle got started, Longstreet sent his own division on the wrong road, having misunderstood Johnston's orders from the previous day. Porter Alexander wrote after the war, quote, General Longstreet entirely misconceived his orders, and instead of marching straight down Nine Mile Road, massing in front of G.W. Smith, he crossed over the Williamsburg Road to get behind D.H. Hill, unquote. Of course, he would not have done it if he had not conceived himself ordered to do it. The Confederate assaults, although not well-coordinated, succeeded in driving back federal the Federal Fourth Corps, and inflicting heavy casualties. Reinforcements arrived, and both sides fed more and more troops into the action. Supported by the units of uh, Federal Second and Third Corps, who crossed the rain-swollen Chickahominy to get there, the Federal position was finally stabilized. General Johnston was seriously wounded uh, during the action, and command of the Confederate Army devolved temporarily to G.W. Smith. On June 1st, the Confederates renewed their assault against the Federals, who had brought up more reinforcements but made little headway. Both sides claimed victory, and this was the battle where Oliver Otis Howard lost his arm, as you might recall from Episode 2. What Longstreet missed at the time was, in Porter Alexander's words, quote, an opportunity for one of the most brilliant strokes of the war, unquote. General Pickett's brigade of on the York uh, River Railroad had an unobstructed path to the Union's right flank above the crossroads. Pickett and Anderson could have rolled up the Union line in a devastating attack. In Longstreet's defense, the heavily wooded terrain restricted any commander's range of vision, and he had never directed so many units in an engagement. In the end, after some confused and desperate fighting, the rebels eliminated federal resistance around Seven Pines, but the cost was dear, and they missed a big opportunity. Alexander described Seven Pines as, quote, a monument, monument of caution against verbal understandings, unquote. Jeffrey Wirt writes, Altogether, May 31, 1862, was perhaps the worst of the war for Longstreet. He did few things correctly and none well. His performance indicated a general who needed more seasoning in his handling of large bodies of troops. He commanded more units on May 31st than any subordinate officer had in an engagement until then. He directed the movement of 13 brigades, roughly 30,000 men, on terrain that hampered, if not precluded, firm control. As we mentioned a moment ago, Joseph E. Johnston was wounded during the fight, and as a consequence, Confederate President Jefferson Davis appointed Robert E. Lee to assume command of the rebel army, soon to be christened Army of Northern Virginia, on June 1, 1862. General Lee did not have a great track record up to this point, having lost Western Virginia to McClellan and Rosecrans. He was serving as Jefferson Davis's chief military advisor, and now Lee had charge over the whole rebel force, which was a cobbled-together, somewhat disorganized army in a very precarious position with its back up against Richmond's city limits. 
After Seven Pines, Lee pulled together all the senior commanders of his army for a conference, and they afterwards spent a good deal of time with Longstreet planning their next moves to try and eject McClellan's army uh, from Richmond. Despite Longstreet's poor performance at Seven Pines, which could be attributed to Johnston's poor communication style, a few days after the meeting, Lee wrote to Davis, quote, Longstreet is a capital soldier. His recommendations hitherto have been good, and I have confidence in him, unquote. Cavalry commander Jeb Stewart, meanwhile, told Lee that McClellan's right flank and supply line were guarded only by a cavalry outpost. On June 11, Lee ordered Stewart to operate against the federal supply and communication lines and gather information on troop dispositions. Stewart started the next day and was gone until the 15th, riding an entire circuit around the Union Army. That spectacular operation garnered the intelligence Lee needed and embarrassed McClellan, and with the loss of only one man. So right after this, the Seven Days Campaign began, which is one of the more fascinating of the war, in my opinion, and began to elevate Robert E. Lee to legendary status in the South and established McClellan's status as a complete failure in the North. However, the campaign was primarily characterized by missed opportunities on both sides. As for the rebels, on at least four separate occasions, Lee's army had the chance to annihilate large portions of the Union force, if not for missteps and mistakes on the part of Stonewall Jackson and other generals. The thrown-together Confederate army was not yet organized, and staff personnel did a poor job of ensuring orders made it to their intended units. Lee's staff was especially ill-suited to support large-scale field operations at this point. This would all be addressed over time, but on, but on the period of June 16 to, or June 26 until July 1st, during the Seven Days Campaign, these issued, issues hampered what could have been a quick and dramatic end to the war. As for the Federals, this campaign demonstrated a toughness uh, and a tenacity on their part, uh, especially on the Corps commanders and on the men who willingly sacrificed themselves for the Union cause, even though poorly employed by a leader who was not present for any of the battles. That's because every step of the way, the Union effort was hampered by mismanagement, incompetence, and some say even cowardice on the part of George B. McClellan. McClellan's army was on the doorstep of Richmond and had the opportunity at least once to knock the door down and storm the, storm the Confederate capital. But instead, McClellan lost his nerve and told his commanders to retreat, retreat instead. Now, McClellan's 100,000-man Union army was situated just northeast of Richmond, facing mainly west. General Fitz John Porter's corps was isolated on the north side of the Chickahominy with the remainder of the Union Army on the south side. Longstreet's recommendation uh, was that Lee should con- concentrate and attack the Union Corps situated on the north side of the Chickahominy and maintain a defensive posture south of the river. Lee thought about it and agreed. Then Stonewall Jackson was ordered to return from the, Stone- the Shenandoah Valley with his divisions to Richmond, now a hero to the southern population, having beaten three Union commands in five battles in quick succession and successfully keeping those Union forces from reinforcing McClellan. Regarding Stonewall Jackson, 
Wirt says, He is a soldier, an implacable warrior, a stern, fanatically religious man. He was a difficult, unbending taskmaster uh, who pushed his officers and men to the limit. They complained about his uh, relentlessness on the march and laughed about his eccentricities, but he had led them to victory like an Old Testament warrior, and they called him Old Jack. No officer in the army, including Lee, enjoyed Jackson's renown with the southern populace. Now, to reject McClellan from the outskirts of Richmond, Lee had developed a complicated plan that required Jackson's forces coming in from the valley to descend from the north onto the rear of the Union line on June 26. A.P. Hill would also attack the Federals just south of there when he heard Jackson's guns firing on the Union rear. Longstreet and D.H. Hill would follow in between the two and press the attack, which, if done correctly, could roll up the Union right flank. This would cause a collapse of their crucial supply lines and possible capture of all the Union forces north of the river. It was an audacious plan with a very strong chance of success. However, Lee's plan went awry immediately. Jackson's men, fatigued from their valley campaign and lengthy march, ran at least four hours behind schedule. A.P. Hill grew impatient and began his attack without orders, a frontal assault with 11,000 men. Porter extended and strengthened his right flank and fell back to concentrate his forces. There, 14,000 well-entrenched soldiers, aided by 32 guns and six batteries, repulsed repeated Confederate attacks with substantial casualties. This was the first of four occasions within the next seven days when Jackson would fail to display initiative, resourcefulness, and dependability, the very qualities that were later to raise him in the stature of one of the foremost military leaders. Overall, the battle turned into a Union tactical victory in which the Confederates suffered heavy losses and achieved none of their specific objectives due to the seriously flawed execution of Lee's plan. Instead of over 60,000 men crushing the enemy flank, only five brigades, about about 15,000 men, had seen action with heavy losses. Moxley Sorrell believed with justification that, quote, had Jackson been in enemy, uh, in, been in position, the enemy would have melted before us, unquote. Despite the short-term Union success, however, it was the start of a strategic debacle. McClellan began to withdraw his army to the southeast and never regained the initiative. Lee continued his offensive on June 27th, launching the largest Confederate attack of the entire war, about 57,000 men and six divisions in a desperate fight. For the second time in seven days, however, Jackson was late. D.H.L. attacked the federal right and was held off by the Union division of George Sykes. Longstreet was ordered to conduct a diversionary attack to stabilize the lines until Jackson could arrive and attack from the north. In Longstreet's attack, General George E. Pickett's brigade attempted a frontal assault and was beaten back under severe fire and heavy losses. Jackson finally reached D.H. Hill's position at 3 p.m. and began his assault at 4.30 at p.m. Clubbing and bayoneting, the Confederates seized 14 cannon. Union cavalrymen spurred towards the rebels in a counterattack that ended in a heap of dead and dying men and horses. 
Behind the Southerners, their comrades in the other divisions were advancing as Lee finally cobbled together a coordinated assault. For two days, Fitz uh, Porter's Yankees had fought valiantly and virtually alone with only limited support from McClellan. The Federals now retreated before this onslaught, leaving behind 2,800 prisoners and uh, 22 cannon. Porter's Corps crossed during the night across the Chickahominy River, and the Confederates had swept the uh, enemy from north of the Chickahominy. The Battle of Gaines Mill, as it would come to be called, cost Lee's army roughly 8,700 men. A.P. Hill's division and four brigades that spearheaded the final assault incurred the heaviest losses. Longstreet's friend George Pickett was unhorsed during the attack with a bullet in the shoulder. For a second consecutive day, Lee had to refashion an attack to destroy Porter's force north of the river. But for a second day, Jackson was late. His division had taken the wrong road because of a guide's error. Interestingly, while Lee was attacking Porter's force north of the Chickahominy with most of his army, he left General John B. Magruder to hold most of the Union army from storming Richmond with only one division. This was the same Magruder who had organized theatrical plays for the 8th Infantry in camp at Corpus Christi just before the Mexican War. Well, Prince John, as he came to be known, was at his dramatic best during the seven days in which he employed tactics such as marching his men and artillery constantly back and forth, back and forth, lighting thousands of extra fires at night and constantly playing of drums to convince the Yankees he had a much larger force than he had. Had McClellan been present to conduct even the most basic reconnaissance, he would have known the ease with which his army could have stormed Richmond and possibly ended, ended the war right then. In fact, several of his corps commanders begged him to allow them to attack Magruder's force, but McClellan refused. In his report, Lee praised Longstreet, writing that the general, quote, resolved with characteristic promptness to carry the heights by assault, unquote. Walter Taylor of Lee's staff stated afterward that, quote, no more creditable performance can be found in history, unquote, of an army than the charge of these four brigades. D.H. Hill's rested troops secured number, numbers of federal uh, cannon, punched holes in the enemy line, and captured scores of prisoners. One of those bagged was General McCall, Union General McCall. As he was being led to the rear, Longstreet rode up, dismounted, and removed his glove and offered his hand. Longstreet had served under McCall in the 4th Infantry 20 years before. McCall stiffened, refused the former Conrad's hand, and said, quote, Excuse me, sir, I can stand defeat, but not insult, unquote. The guards hustled him away, and Longstreet went back to work. After more days of fighting and a strategy of concentration and turning movements, Lee's army continued to push Union forces back to Malvern Hill in a series of desperate, bloody attacks. Again, Jackson had proved his inability to support fighting. However, Lee uh, had removed the immediate danger from Richmond and gained the strategic initiative for the summer. In numerical terms, the Confederates inflicted 15,849 casualties including prisoners, and captured 52 cannon and 35,000 muskets and pistols. 
For a week, with little to eat and without a change of clothing, Lee's men displayed the fighting spirit that would soon make them one of the finest armies in American military history. As for Jackson, Lee reorganized the army in July, reducing Jackson's command from 14 brigades to 7 and increasing Longstreet's from 6 to 28. Longstreet emerged from the campaign as Lee's most reliable subordinate commander. Less than a month after his performance at Seven Pines, Longstreet had redeemed himself. Moxley Sorrell described him as, quote, that undismayed warrior, uh, adding, he, he was like a rock in, in steadiness when sometimes in battle the world seemed flying to pieces, unquote. McClellan would lose his nerve and retreat to Harrison Landing on the James River, and on April 3rd, General in Chief, new General-in-Chief Henry Halleck directed McClellan to begin his final withdrawal from the peninsula and return to Northern Virginia to support Union General John Pope. McClellan protested, and uh, he did not begin his redeployment until August 14th. McClellan's misadventure on the Virginia Peninsula was a heartbreaking failure for the Union. However, it can be argued that this failure was actually for the best of the country and for the Union. How on earth could this be possible? Well, could McClellan, when he had the chance, have been have brought himself to pull the trigger and capture Richmond, the South would likely have re-entered the Union exactly as it left, with slavery intact. It was only after this loss did Lincoln and the U.S. Congress make the emancipation of slaves a primary objective of the war effort. It was just now that Lincoln and the rest of the U.S. was figuring out what Grant had learned in April, right after Shiloh, that this would be a long and costly war. For the North to win, they would have to change the stakes. With this in mind, Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet in a draft form on July the 22nd, just after the loss on the peninsula. Of course, this document in its official form was made public just six months later. Meanwhile, after the Union debacle in the Shenandoah by the rebels under Jackson, Lincoln and Stanton called in General John Pope to take command of the disparate Union commands in the Shenandoah Valley and to protect Washington. Pope was another of Longstreet's roommates from West Point, and he had achieved modest success in the West, having won battles at New Badgerid, Missouri, and Island Number 10. So he was brought east to command the new Union Army of Virginia, as it was confusingly called at the time. Unfortunately for the Federals, their new commander, Pope, was egotistic, fractious, and loudmouthed. Pope quickly alienated his subordinate officers and earned the scorn of, of the men in the ranks. He proclaimed to the army that he came to the West, quote, where we, we have always seen the backs of our enemies, unquote. Let us look before and not behind, Pope asserted. Quote, success and glory are in the advance, unquote. Well, uh, Confederate General Lee was no longer concerned about McClellan, so he trained his sights on Pope's army instead. Since the Union Army was split between McClellan and Pope, and they were widely separated, Lee saw an opportunity, opportunity to destroy Pope before returning his attention to McClellan. Then Lee sent General Jackson north to intercept Pope's advance toward Gordonsville. 
the two forces finally clashed at Cedar Mountain on April or on August the 9th, which was a Confederate victory. When Lee was satisfied that McClellan's army was no longer a threat to Richmond, he sent most of the rest of his army under Longstreet's command to destroy Pope's army. Jackson conducted a wide-ranging maneuver around Pope's right flank, seizing the large supply depot in Pope's rear at Manassas Junction, placing his force between Pope and Washington. Moving to a very defensible position near the battleground of First uh, Bull Run or Manassas, Jackson successfully repulsed Union assaults on August 29th as Longstreet's command arrived on the battlefield. This is the beginning of the Second Manassas Battle, or Second Bull Run, as Jackson initiated a smaller battle at Bronner's Farm with the intent of holding Pope's army in place until Longstreet arrived with the remainder of the Army of Northern Virginia. Longstreet's 25,000 men began their march with, through Thoroughfare Gap at 6 a.m. on August 29th. Jackson, whose forces were engaged in heavy fighting the whole time, sent Stuart to guide the initial elements of Longstreet's column into position. Longstreet arrived and oversaw the deployment of his command, which was complete by noon, and when combined with Jackson's line, it, the total resembled a giant open V, with Jackson on the left and Longstreet on the right, with the top facing Pope's Union forces. When Stephen Dill Lee's artillery battalion arrived the next day, they would be perfectly positioned in the center, as we discussed in episode one, uh, Stephen D. Lee would earn much praise for his artillery performance in this battle. With Longstreet's dispositions completed, the Confederate front uh, covered roughly three miles, divided almost equally between Jackson and Longstreet. Jackson's lo uh, line offered an excellent defensive position. Longstreet's had no natural strength, but more like a platform from which to launch an attack. Woods concealed Longstreet's ranks. If the Federals stumbled in uh, into the ground between the two wings, Lee could snap the blade together, their blades together like a giant scissors, slicing the enemy ranks into pieces. By a strategic maneuver, Lee had placed his army in one of the greatest tactical opportunities of the war. Meanwhile, Rebel Cavalry Commander Jeb Stuart had earlier informed Lee that an unknown enemy force was approaching on the Gainesville Manassas Road beyond Longstreet's right flank. Longstreet believed these matters required attention and requested a personal reconnaissance, which Lee approved. While this was going on, Jackson's defenders were heavily engaged and clinging to their positions with uh, fighting which was hand-to-hand, -hand, muzzle to muzzle, vicious and deadly. The final federal attack crashed into Jackson's left. The Yankees belonged to Major General Philip Kearney, a superb command officer who exhorted his men, quote, fall in here, you sons of bitches, and I'll make major generals out of every one of you, unquote. Kearney's men stormed up a rocky knoll and met a furnace of gunfire. Confederate reserves repulsed the Northerners, ending the combat on Jackson's sector for the day. This was the same one-armed Phil Kearney we discussed in Episode 2, who comforted Oliver Otis Howard after losing his right arm at Seven Pines by telling him, quote, the ladies won't mind, unquote. Lee was meanwhile pressing Longstreet to attack on his front, but it was getting late, so Longstreet instead convinced Lee 
that your reconnaissance and force by John Bell Hood's division would set him up for successful concerted attack the next morning. Longstreet's conduct on this day revealed a deliberate, careful tactician who was unwilling to throw his men into a situation without knowledge of the terrain or enemy dispositions. Circumstances at noon necessitated a reconnaissance, and once Longstreet reported his findings, Lee postponed the offensive. Pope, meanwhile, concluded without evidence that Jackson's forces were retreating and ordered Porter's Corps and divisions under Reynolds and Hatch to pursue. Jackson's muskets and Stephen D. Lee's guns answered, and Longstreet knew the moment had arrived. He decided to counterattack with his entire command, and his staff officers went racing along the front, transmitting orders. At company or at army headquarters, Lee concluded the same, sending his staff officers to Longstreet. The moment had come, and Longstreet seized it. Quote, My whole line rushed forward at a charge. The troops sprang to their work and moved forward with all the steadiness and firmness that characterizes war-worn veterans, unquote. Longstreet wrote in his report. Each regimental color bearer stepped in front, ahead of the battle lines. Quote, the spectacle was magnificent, unquote, admitted, uh, admitted an onlooker. When some of Jackson's men saw the flags moving eastward, they cheered. For the next four hours, Longstreet's veterans fought magnificent, magnificently. Like a giant hammer, they pounded the Union defenders in a series of blows. First Hood, then Evans, Kemper, then Jones, Anderson, and Wilcox. The combat flowed across Young's branch onto a bloody crest of Chin Ridge to climax at Henry Hill, just like at First Manassas. The Federals battled as if, fate, as if the fate of the army hung in the balance, and it did. It was one of the finest counterattacks of the war. That Longstreet's troops did not ultimately succeed in destroying the enemy army can be attributed in part to the failure of Jackson to lend assistance. When Longstreet charged, Lee sent a message to Jackson, quote, General Longstreet is advancing, look out for and protect his left flank, unquote. For reasons unexplained, Jackson did not move forward until 6 p.m., nearly two hours later. By then, his delay had allowed the Federals to shift brigades uh, to their left against Longstreet's uh, side and enfilade the latter's units with artillery. The Confederates would never come again so close to destroy a Union army. On September 1st, in an afternoon's thunderstorm, Jackson struck Pope's rear guard at Chantilly. In a nasty firefight, the Federals repulsed Jackson's thrust, but lost Phil Kearney, who was killed. That night, Longstreet relieved Jackson's men, and the second Manassas campaign concluded. Longstreet described the campaign as, quote, clever and brilliant, unquote, giving the entire credit to Lee. On the battlefield, Lee, quote, displayed the most brilliant tactical ability, unquote. Longstreet came to regard it as Lee's finest operation, an ideal blend of strategic offensive and tactical defensive. To him, Second Manassas became the model for future battles. Longstreet's success on the fields of Manassas established a strategic model he believed to be ideal, the use of defensive tactics within a strategic offensive, He would advocate similar strategy for the remainder of the war, and especially as we discussed in part one at Gettysburg. Now, tune in for episode 13, in which we will discuss the Maryland campaign 
all the way through to the Overland Campaign, or the Wilderness Campaign, as it was otherwise known. 